Well, good morning. I'm uh, beginning to get a little excited. The, uh, the first time that uh, we got to meet, uh, first couple of times we were in a high school, and now we're in a middle school, and if you guys make one more move, you'll be right at my level, so we'll be, we'll be good. I'm, I'm getting excited about that. But uh, anyway, I'm Nate Arnold, and uh, am I in a, do I sound like I'm in a barrel up here, or what? Is it just me? Yeah, okay, okay. I'm Nate Arnold, and uh, this is our final installment on a series we've been doing entitled The Majestic God, who, and this morning, uh, our sermon comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, as you've already seen, uh, verses 1 through 17, and our sermon title this morning is The Majestic God, who is personally invested. And the main point is going to be that God truly invests himself. God truly invests himself. Now, I'll give you just a little background this morning. Uh, In the early parts of 2 Samuel, if you've ever read 2 Samuel, you'll find a great civil war going on. And the civil war will be going on between the house of David and the house of Saul. And it'll, it'll, it's, it's just a terrible thing, as, as most civil wars are. And David begins to grow stronger and stronger. And David is finally made the king of Judah. And his kingdom is in Hebron, which is in the southern portion of, of Israel. And he rules from Hebron seven and a half years. Seven and a half years he rules there. And the civil war eventually uh, comes to an end. And finally, David is anointed king of all Israel. So David decides to take Jerusalem from the Zebu- or Jebusites and he moves northward. He takes the, the, uh, the city of Jerusalem and he moves in there, sets it up as his capital and that bridges the gap between the northern and the southern kingdom of Israel. So David's kind of hit the sweet spot in managing the tribes. And then finally he builds a palace here. And he builds a palace for himself. And then he builds a tent for the ark of God. And he, run, he goes and grabs the ark of God and he brings it eventually to Jerusalem and puts it in the tent. And this kind of sets the stage for our passage this morning. So let's look at our text here just for a second. Uh, in in uh, chapter 7 there of Second Samuel, we see ver- David's good intentions good intentions in verses 1 through 3. The civil war's over. David's now relaxed. He's sitting around talking with the prophet Nathan, uh, probably having a cup of coffee, whatever they did back in those days, and uh, just kind of a little relaxed. And David's thoughts begin to turn to God. And, and he instinctively knows that the visual symbol of God on the earth should not be less than the visual symbol of the monarch or of him in the palace. He insta- he's a military man. He understands rank and file. And he's troubled by this. And, and he says to Nathan, he says, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. I dwell in a palace. I've got a nice place to live. And the Ark of the Covenant actually lives or dwells in a tent. As nice as it is, it's still a, say it with me, tent, right? Still a tent. And, and that concerns David, and, and rightly so. So uh, it presents the wrong image that what the king is doing is more important than what God is doing. That what the king is about 
is, is more important than what God is about. And, and, and David understands that the exact opposite is actually true. That he exists to serve God. God does not exist to serve him. And the picture that's getting painted right now does not paint that correctly. Well, let's just roll this into our context just for a second. How does this understanding translate into our lives today? Where do we put our priorities? If someone was to take a look at your time log or your calendar or was to look at your checkbook or what what you talk about, listen to what you talk about a lot, where would that be? Would the focus and your individual energies, would they see that we are seeking to bring more glory to God than ourselves? Think about it. And I, I pray that that would be so. I, I, think that w- I pray that that would be the actual bent of our lives. And Nathan the prophet, being a good friend to David, uh, he discerns the intentions of David's heart. And he tells David, he says, David, go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And I think we have to be a little careful with this statement and we have to look at it properly because we need to discern exactly what's being said by the prophet. Because you have here a prophet, a guy who's identified as a prophet. Am I echoing bad or something? I see a lot of people. Uh, all right. uh, am I? Is that? Okay, okay. Uh, I just didn't know. It seems weird to me up here. But as long as you guys can hear, I'm okay. Uh, but David, um, uh, Nathan is talking to David as a prophet and David as a king. So if we're not careful, we're going to take what Nathan says here And we're going to treat it like thus says the Lord. And that's not the way that Nathan is expressing this first portion. Not at all. He's talking to David as a friend. And in our candlelight service here, we will, no, it's fine. Nathan is encouraging David as a friend, a godly man to a godly man. And Nathan has not prefaced anything that he just said to David as thus saith the Lord. He's not said, thus saith the Lord, go do all that's in your heart. Because in a second, you're going to see something else. So that very night, before David can call his first contractor, the, uh, that very night, the God who is personally invested immediately steps in. And in this case, he's going to be directly speaking to the prophet Nathan. And he tells Nathan in, in verses 4 through 7, and I want you to note the gentle corrective of God here. Very gentle, but yet it is a corrective. And moms and dads, you'll recognize this formula. You'll get it right off. Anybody who's ever raised kids or or grandkids, the first thing you do is ask the question. The second thing you do is you give some guiding information. And the third way, or the third thing you do is restate the question again in a slightly different way so that the person or the child comes to the proper conclusion. This is a formula that every parent uses, exact formula that God is about to use here. For example, you would say, Johnny, your question would be, Johnny, you're running with a, why are you running with a sharp pencil? Johnny, don't you know that if you fall down, you will wind up with some extra holes in your body from the sharp pencil, amplifying your information. And then finally, Johnny, wouldn't you prefer to put that pencil on the shelf and not run with a sharp pencil? Yes, Mom, I would prefer to do that. You you see the questioning sequence and, and see how it works. Every parent does this. God does this. So God puts the question in verse 5. He says, David, would you build me a 
house to dwell in. Now this is, thus says the Lord. David, would you build me a house to dwell in? And this particular question contains several implications. He says, David, are you perhaps being a little presumptuous? Thinking that you've got it all planned out? You know what's going on here? Do you really understand what's going on? Have you sought my mind in this thing? Did you put any time in prayer or, or anything about what you want to do? And are you truly taking into account the relationship between how I dwell and how I live with my people? David, have, have you done that? Would you really build me a house, David, to dwell in? And then God provides the guiding information. He says, David, I want you to think, and that's in verse 6. He says, David, I want you to think. Think about how I live with my people. Since the time that I brought them out of Egypt, how have I dwelt with my people? I move with my people everywhere they go. I live in a tent and a tabernacle with them. I'm not way up here. My tent is nice, but I'm still in a tent everywhere the people go. And he gives David some guiding information. He says, David, think about how willing I am to condescend and to dwell with my people. Think about that. If you're going to build me a house. And we see this exact pattern in Christ. So a quick little aside here. And by the way, Christ is the visual symbol of God. Christ says himself, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? You've seen the Father when you've seen me. And, and Christ does this exact same. In, in John 5.19, the Bible says, and Christ himself says, the Son does whatever he sees the Father doing. Does whatever he sees the Father doing. And in, in John 1.14, the Bible says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt there means to tabernacle. Christ came and tabernacled with his people just like he saw his father doing with the early Jewish people. Did the exact same thing. Just a little quick aside there. Verse 7. Let's read that. God restates the question. He's using the formula. Restates the question. So let's review the verse together. It says, In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? The obvious answer is no. And David, you know that I always go with my people. I am always with my people. And then after helping David to realign his thinking, the personally invested God shows David how, he, how David, how he is going to be used to be a blessing to those very same people, to God's people themselves. And in verses 8 and 9, God gives David some reminders. Note that everything in verse 8 and 9 is in past tense. It has already happened. This is God reminding David of what he has done for him. And he, in, in this case, he, he talks about three things. He said, David, I want you to know that I did the electing. I took. I chose. I picked you. And he says, I did the electing. He said, I also did the appointing, David, that I chose you. I took you that you should be a prince over my people. I did the electing and I did the appointing of your particular position and where you sat. I did that, David. And I did that 
for you. And I have provided my presence and protection. I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And David, these are some of the ways that I, the Lord God, have given you grace. What are some of the ways that the Lord has given us grace in your life? What are some of the ways that the Lord has been with you? I, I don't know all those, but you do if you think back over them. What, what are the ways that the Lord has proved Himself faithful and invested in your life and always been with you? Just like He has been with David. And then the remainder of the text... The remainder of the text from from verse 9, that last half of verse 9, all the way through verse 17, shifts from past tense to future tense. David, I did all this, but now I'm going to do all these things. And God's grace kind of telescopes outward, and it telescopes outward in three general phases. The near term, he says, I'm going to do this in the near term. And then the next generation, I'm going to do this for the next generation. And then I'm going to do this way on out in the future. And that's how God's grace telescopes here in the text. God's grace, he says, David, in verses 9 through 11, he says, I'll continue to give you grace in the near term. And look what he says. He says, I'll make you a great name. I'll make you a great name. Now, there's a purpose in making David a great name, and we'll get to that in a second. But he says, I'll make you a great name, David, in the near future. And he says, I will plant my people in the near future. Okay? I will make you a great name, and I will plant my people. And I will give you peace. And this is all wrapped up in the people. David, I'll give you a great name so that you have the power to minister and, and, and to... to to benefit my people. And then I'm going to plant my people, David. And then I'm going to give you peace, David, so that those people that I planted will have peace. This is what I'm going to do in the near term for you, David, and for the house of Israel. And then once my people are settled, see, there's no temple building up to this point, okay? Because the people aren't settled. And God is all about His people. Matter of fact, God is crazy about His people if you look through the Scripture. But He says, once my people are settled, He says, I will, in verses 11 through 15, He says, I will give grace to your next generation. He says, first of all, He says, David, I will make you a dynasty. I'll give grace to your next generation. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish His kingdom. And I will establish, watch this word, underline it, His kingdom forever. Forever. I'll establish His kingdom forever. And I will be His Father and he will be my son. And this is the very first time in Scripture as you move through the story of Scripture that you see this kind of relationship where God is the Father and man is the Son. It's the very first time that this happens. And God equates this relationship that a person can have with God as Father and Son. Never till this verse do you see that. Now, Christ has this exact same relationship in the New Testament, right? In Mark, when He's praying, Christ says, Abba, 
Father. Abba just means daddy. Daddy, Father. He prays this way. Paul tells us that we have the Holy Spirit within us if we're followers of Christ. And that Spirit is the Spirit of adoption. And that Spirit of adoption allows us to cry, say it with me, Abba, Father. We can have that exact same relationship that he's talking about here with David's progeny. And he says, when he messes up David, I'll discipline him, but I won't forsake him. I'll never, ever, 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 ever withdraw my love from him. God is personally invested in David's future and in your future also through Christ. Through Christ, his grace is extended forever. Now, our sermon can end right here. We've covered the text. We've gone through the whole text. But it would not be the point of the text if we stopped right here. You see, the God who is speaking to David is a majestic God. He's the majestic God whose will cannot be thwarted. He's the majestic God who preserves and establishes. He's the majestic God who calls by faith. He's the majestic God who is personally invested and He is invested in keeping His promises to David and to you and to me. And this verse, verse 16, has caused gallons of ink to be spilled. It's caused prophets to pray. It's caused people to search. It's caused pundits to point. Because God says in verse 16, He says, I will extend grace to you, David, forever. Your house or your dynasty will be forever. Your kingdom, the span of your rule, will be forever. Your throne, your kingship will be forever. Ever and ever. This verse directly connects the Old and the New Testaments. This verse points to one person and one person only. Period. And you say, well, how do you know that, Nate? Well, here's how we know. In Jeremiah chapters 21 through 24, Jeremiah specifically says the Davidic dynasty is going to end. It's going to come to a close. A dynasty is a succession of kings that all belong to the same family. It's, it's going to come to a close. And you say, well, wait a minute. Hold on. Okay. It's coming to an end. And Jerusalem and the temple are going to come to an end. And if you look in 2 Kings chapter 25, you'll see all that actually happens. In 586 B.C., third rebellion against the Babylonians. Babylonians sweep in. They take Zedekiah, who's the king at the time, kill all his sons in front of him for the rebellion, gouge his eyes out, and take him to Babylon. And then they level Jerusalem and the temple. It's, it's gone. It's totally destroyed, just like the prophet Jeremiah says. But, but, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zechariah, and Malachi either have or will all stated that God's still going to make good on His promise to David. It's going to happen. Stand by. 
And in Jeremiah 33, 14 through 7, he says, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices. Ezekiel chapter 34 Verses 23 through 24. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. And he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And Isaiah 11.1 says that one who is the shoot of the stump or the root of Jesse is going to spring up and he's going to be called the branch. And the branch is coming. And this is all after Jerusalem is just wiped off the face of the globe just about. I mean, it's completely destroyed. And these prophets are saying these kinds of things. And then the Persians take over from the Babylonians. They whoop up on the Babylonians. And then the Persians allow the Jews to begin to return in 538 B.C. They say, okay, the first wave can go back to Jerusalem. So the first wave does with Zerubbabel. They begin to build the temple. 515, they get the temple built. The next wave of Jews return back with the prophet Ezra. And then I think that's in 458. And then Nehemiah comes in 445 B.C. and he rebuilds the wall. You got the temple, you got the people, you got the wall, you got the city, you got no king. Still no king. That's promise. Still no king. And Zechariah and Malachi during this time period all began to, to prophesy. And they all state, the branch is coming. The branch is coming. And not only is the branch coming, there's a guy named Elijah that's going to be coming before him and preparing the way. Stand by. The branch is coming. And the Assyrians take over from the Persians. And no king. And then the Maccabean revolt happens. Most of you have heard about the Judas the Maccabee, Judas the Hammer. The Maccabean revolt happens. And they have rulers, the Hasmoneans, they have rulers, but still no king, still no promised king. And then the Romans come in in 63 BC and they just whoop up on everybody and they take over the whole area of Jerusalem. Still no king, got no king. And then finally, the Romans appoint a guy king. They actually, uh, and this is, was rare for the Romans, if you ever read your Roman history, to allow a, be, a guy to be called the king of something. But they let Herod the Great be called king of the Jews. But he's not the prophesied king, and everybody knows that. Everyone knows 
that he's not the prophesied king to come, promised to David. And in a little backwater town in Judea, an angel appears to a young virgin. And in Luke chapter 1, the angel says to, to Mary, he says, and behold, now watch this carefully, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Starting to see something line up here? And in Matthew chapter 2, after the birth of Jesus, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east come to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? And Herod goes, Wait a minute, I'm the king of the Jews. And he turns to the priests and the scribes, and he goes, What's going on here? Where is this cat? And they've been searching. It's evident from the text. They've been searching all along. They even know where he's going to be born. And they say, King Herod, he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. They've been looking all along for this promise, and they know it's not fulfilled yet. They know it's not there yet. And Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David comes just as God promised. And He fulfills all the roles prophesied of Him. He fulfills all righteousness. He gives His life as a ransom for many. He is crucified and resurrected. He ascends into heaven where He sits at the right hand of God the Father, and there He fills His role as prophet, priest, and king. He's a prophet because He reveals the Word of God to us for our salvation. He's a priest because He made the sacrifice for us and continually intercedes at the right hand of God today. And He's a king because He rules and defends us, brings us under His power, protects us and overcomes all His and all our enemies. That's His role. This king comes. And now the king is on the throne. He's come and he's on the throne. And this very same Christ is coming again. I found me a bead. Didn't want to step on that. But uh, this very same Christ is coming again. And the Bible says he's going to come. This king, the fulfillment He's going to come. And He's going to come in multiple ways. First way He's going to come is like lightning. Matthew 24 says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines to the west, so will be the coming of man. There'll be no doubt that Jesus Christ the King has come back to this earth. And on down in Matthew 24, it says, There will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven in power and great glory. And He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather His elect from the four winds. Jesus is going to come like lightning. Jesus is also coming again to raise us from the dead. Now folks, if this doesn't start lighting your fire, then your wood's wet. Really, think about 
Okay, This king, the promised king, the king David, the king that sits on the throne of David forever and ever, he's coming back to raise us from the dead. It says, for the Lord himself will descend with, from heaven with a cry, with a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up in the air to be with him forever. 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 And He's coming again so that we may live and reign with Him forever in the new Jerusalem. Revelation 22 says, They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp nor sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever. (laughs) Starting to see a pattern, right? Okay. And then lastly... Maybe not lastly, but again, Christ is coming because God intends to be among His people. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. That's some pretty amazing stuff. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God who fulfills all those prophecies about David, who is the King that sits on the throne, the Son of God will be as far as I can tell by Scripture encapsulated in a glorified body for the rest of time. Think about that. That's how much He desires to tabernacle and to dwell with His people and to be with His people. That's an amazing thought. He's chosen to tabernacle among His people forever. And I think that's about as personally as invested as you can get. That our Lord, our God, would do that for us and wants to be with us that bad. John 14, 3-6 says, In my Father's house, this is Jesus speaking, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And then Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says this to him. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. The only way to get there is to be in Christ. The only way to dwell with Christ forever is to be in Christ. And this is the majestic God who is personally invested and invested in in securing a way and a place with us to be with Him throughout eternity. Will you... Give your heart to Him. Will you surrender your life to Him? Will you serve Him? Will you choose to be in Him when that time comes? Will you do that? Because if you do, these facts, these things are a reality for you that forever the God of heaven and earth, the promised one, the promise of David will be yours forever. Let's pray. My Father, may Your name just be glorified. 
Lord, may we, Your people, just spread Your fame abroad. May we just tell of the wondrous, marvelous things that You have done and and how You fulfilled the promise. Even when it seemed hopeless, even when the whole place was torn down flat to the ground and there was no way there could be an heir or anything else, yet You fulfill that promise. And You fulfill that promise so that we can be with You. And You've demonstrated Your desire that You are invested. You're invested in our daily lives. You're invested in our future, Father. And that future lies with You. You desire to dwell with us. Put that fresh in our hearts. Let that be in our eyes before us always. Lord, as the Old Testament often puts it on our foreheads, that it would be constantly in the front of our mind that we might be a joyous people. We might be a thankful people. And we might be a people that readily points this out to other people and shares the Gospel. And that we're not ashamed of it. And that we're constantly thankful for it no matter what happens to us. The end state, Lord, as, as someone has put it, in the end, we win. Lord, there's nothing about this that's not a winning situation. And You desire for it to happen. You've promised that it will happen. And You will make sure that it happens, Father. And for that, we give You glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.